expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the view of Wolfpack Research or any of its officers. The views and opinions expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on this program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. We are not investment advisors. We hold no registrations with the SEC, FINRA, or any other regulatory agency, and none of the opinions expressed on this podcast should be considered investment advice. The listener should assume that we have positions in and stand to benefit from any stock or other security mentioned on this podcast. Do your own research before making investment decisions. Welcome to the Wolf Den, everybody. This is Dan David coming at you with the pack. And by pack, I mean Carl, the sound guy. And I'm not, I'm not using his new moniker, Sound Carl, even though he trademarked it. It, so. it, it does have a trademark. Okay. We'll get, we'll get to your pronouns later. <laughs> we're back in the studio today to cover a special topic with two special guests. Today, we're going to talk about Elizabeth Holmes and the trial and verdict, where we think it was right, where we think there was a miss here and there what we think of the whole thing and then the news flow. We'll see what comes of any jail time that one of our guests, Soren A. Andal, <laughs> predicted last year that she would get. Also joining us is Professor Frank Partnoy. Professor Partnoy helps mold future lawyers at Berkeley Law. Before Berkeley, he taught 21 years at the University of San Diego, great school, where he was the George E. Barrett Professor of Law and Finance and received the Thronson's Prize for Excellence in Teaching Three Times. Wow, this is some guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Professor Partnoy is an international research fellow at Oxford University, another great school. For fun, he serves on a steering committee for the Financial Economist Roundtable. Professor Portnoy has written dozens of scholarly publications on topics and books. These books would include Weight, Match King, Infectious Greed, and Fiasco. Also been on 60 Minutes and all those shows that I do regularly. <laughs> Our other guest is Soren. Yeah, just, just a redhead guy. <laughs> <laughs> Soren, of course, is an activist short extraordinaire of Blue Orca. He's been on our show before. He's a returning champion. Everybody loves Soren. And uh, I hear in the future, uh, Charybdis Capital. Right. His feeder fund. Have you, have you started Charybdis Capital, Soren? Our, our listeners want to know um oh charybdis capital yeah <laughs> that's right charybdis capital no i feel like that one gets sort of uh started undercover you, you don't you get diagnosed with charybdis capital you don't start it <laughs> <laughs> fair enough fair enough and everybody knows blue orca is norwegian for whale's uterus everybody's <laughs> written it about that too soren so our show today is on one of my I, I listen. I'm just fascinated by Elizabeth Holmes. The whole story fascinates me. It always has. We're still not at a conclusion here. I mean, she's still kind of running our lives for a while. And I guess starting with the trial itself and the cult of personality that she's developed, Professor Partner, what do you think? What did you think of the trial? What did you think of her performance in the trial? I agree with you. I've been fascinated by her case for a long time. And obviously we've seen Alex Gibney's film and there's been a lot written about her. I mean, I think one of the big takeaways from the trial is it's really hard to convict someone of this kind of crime. It takes a long time. It takes a lot of evidence. It's hard to persuade a jury. And she had many, many tactics. You know, she, her, her lawyers 
were bobbing and weaving for months. And these cases, I, I, I did a little bit of this kind of work when I was in practice a long time ago. And, and any kind of white collar criminal case that's well funded on the defense side is just really, really hard. And, you know, kudos to Soren for predicting this long, long time ago. I mean, I think nobody knew how narrowly the case would end up being focused on this handful of charges with the jury ending up being split and having a tough time. So that's kind of the big takeaway I have is that it, these cases are just really hard to, to prove. Well, Soren, as you may know, is a former attorney extraordinaire from Kirkland, Ellis, you know, <laughs> uh, the, the Vatican's law firm. So it didn't surprise me at all that Soren came up with that. And, you know, I said she'd get off. And look, this goes in part and parcel to what Professor Partnoy said. It's really hard to convict. I mean, if you, but if you can't convict her, who can you convict? Was that your point all along, Soren? Yeah, I think Professor Fortner is dead right. And, and I think that what's interesting is if you look at back at the history of sort of white collar crime prosecution, criminal prosecutions in the United States, in the Enron WorldCom era, where like Bernie Evers was getting like 25 years and, and, and Ken Lay and Jeff Skilling, there was a sense that that was, that was kind of the beginning of, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a shift in the landscape. And, and that now that like, you know, CEOs basically caught you know, I guess not necessarily defrauding investors, but playing accounting games, and would, would it would be easier to prosecute, and that there would be a more of a momentum. And in fact, what we see in the last like you know two decades is that really that was actually the high watermark, and that it's substantially more difficult. I mean, I, I think that you know you look back at someone like Bernie Evers getting twenty five years, the, the the evidence against Elizabeth Holmes I think is substantially stronger. Yeah, and. To Professor Fartner's point, I think that that's one of the things that I'm interested in also is, 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 is sort of how this we think about this reverberating through not just the legal community and the landscape, but how do venture capital and how do investors think about these risks and how do founders think about the different events incentive structure of, of the honesty of their disclosures. And when we, you know, I assume we're going to kind of talk about that, but I think one of the big takeaways is that the government wanted this to be a, a behavior, I think, a, like a deterrent. And they wanted this to be like a behavior modification of the temptation of founders to sort of not only egregiously exaggerate their claims, but also basically kind of to defraud like VCs and early investors. And I think in that, it was probably a failure. The, the trial itself was a failure in, in making the example you're saying. I think so. I mean, I think that's just based on my conversations with the, with the more the, the, the VC side of it and the investor side of it. And I think that that's surprising considering how egregious the conduct was, which is just like, if you can't get this conviction and if you can't, you know, the deterrent impact of this case would seem to be the highest. You know, what does that say for the conduct that's, that's I guess, less egregious? And- well, I guess I, I, I would ask, I mean, Professor Partner, you're in, you're in VC Central. Uh, I mean, you're right there. We're all of it at top university in the world. So a lot of this stuff comes through there as well. W- was what she did particularly egregious compared to, I don't know, any given SPAC CEO in the last couple of years or... Because I'm looking at it, and I guess I read a statistic. I don't know if it's right or wrong, but that white-collar fraud cases such as this are down 54% since 2011. I don't think lying has gone down 54% <laughs> since 2011. So is it your experience that this was particularly egregious, or is this, was this business as usual for a while? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it, the answer is that it's a little bit of both, right? It sort of depends on what you think of as lying. 
I think lying is lying. Yeah, right. But uh, you know what is exaggerating lying is puffery lying, you know, and, and a lot of business and marketing is about exaggerating claims or talking about the future in a very optimistic way that some people might say is lying and other people might say is not lying. And I think Soren's right about the deterrence issue because I think a lot of people in tech and across industries now are looking at Elizabeth Holmes's case and the specifics of the conviction and saying, I would never do that. You know, if you look at actually what she was convicted on and the details about making specific misrepresentations and lying in, in documents to investors, that kind of lying, I think a lot of people would say, no way, I'm not, I'm not doing that. Forging documents. Forging documents, right? So that's not something that people think of themselves as doing, generally speaking, forging documents. But then the other is, you know, I think that for a lot of entrepreneurs, when they're when they're thinking about their business and marketing over time, they they come to believe a story that's not a hundred percent truthful. And that's just part of what happens as you're an executive. I mean, we have a lot of very optimistic people in the Bay. And, and if you ask them, you know, if, if you grabbed a person off the street and said, hey, is this person lying? You know, it's it, many people might say, yeah, they're, they're lying. They're exaggerating. This is false. Right. But would it rise to the level of convicting them for a crime? No way. And so I think this is one of the reasons why you don't have deterrence is because people will look at the Elizabeth Holmes case and say, well, she was way over. This is not just optimism. Right. This is actually, you know, cutting and pasting a document to make a specific misrepresentation to an investor. And that's something very different. So you'll deter that. You know, you might deter that. You might deter that. But yeah. Yeah. I think like I think that now is where also the, the distinction comes between the, the trial, the charges on which she was convicted and which ones she was, which ones there was a hung jury, right? So I think- Well, not to interrupt you, uh, Soren, but to help your point, and then you're going to continue. Let's just, let me go over that. I, I'm probably a little remiss here. She was charged with nine counts of wire fraud and two counts of conspiracy to commit wire fraud. And she was found guilty of what, four counts, right? And either not guilty or they could come to no decision on all the other counts. So she almost got off. I mean, it was a close thing. No, so there was what? She gets convicted. She was acquitted. She was convicted of three counts of wire fraud and one conspiracy. Yeah. Acquitted of four counts and then three counts there was a hung jury. But there's an important distinction to make in, in the details here, which is she was acquitted for the charges which related to patients. Yeah. And the jury essentially did not believe the government presented sufficient evidence that she defrauded patients that took her faulty tests, even though, you know, you would, you might think going into the trial that, that the testimony of a witness saying that they, you know, had AIDS when they didn't because of this test, which is what happened that, or the HIV, like that someone was at a high risk of a miscarriage or someone had cancer when they didn't, that would make a really sympathetic witness as opposed to a VC investor standing up and saying, I'm a rich guy who got like a little less rich because of what happened. It, but actually, that's not really the way that it, that it worked out. And I think that, that that was a really interesting wrinkle, right? That the patient, which was acquitted on the patient charges. Well, I think they felt that way about Alan Eisman uh, uh, as being a rich guy who didn't. But uh, this kind of speaks to yeah, that's right. Frank's point that the truth in advertising thing is just kind of a really fuzzy, floaty line. And maybe other blood test companies have gotten it wrong as far as you have AIDS, you don't have AIDS or, or whatever, and then you go back and redo it. So where you're advertising to consumers, 
maybe that's a that's a more squiggly line, but where you're meeting up with investors and saying, yeah, see this document right here, Pfizer's on board. The other thing to remember about that split is that it doesn't really help any criminal defendant to go four for uh, go go you know four for eleven or seven for eleven depending on how you count them you know if you get convicted you're convicted she's she's going to do some serious jail time yeah and maybe maybe we'll talk about that in a little bit but you know that that that's important to remember when you get inside the heads of the jury in the jury room right because they're negotiating and some of them might feels more strongly about one count versus another count. And so there's some horse trading that happens in the jury room with respect to what they convict on. But this was not a jury that apparently said, oh, we're going to let her go free, right? This is just a jury that was going back and forth. And so I'm not sure there's a lot of solace with respect to the you know, con- consumer points. I mean, if she if she had had really weak evidence with respect to the investors, for example, as opposed to the you know the, the clients, then the jury might have done the opposite kind of horse trading and convicted her on on those. So I you know I think I think people have made a lot out of the fact that the jury was deadlocked and that the jury didn't find it, uh, that she was guilty on some of the counts, but but I'm not sure that reflects that much about her guilt or innocence as it does. You know, they had eleven things and ended up just doing some trading back and forth and ended up landing on convicting her, which is you know, where I think, you know, Soren saw this a long time ago, but I think people who were following the trial closely thought there was a very good chance of that happening. Do you think that she gets convicted if they never roll out the test to consumers? Do you think that this is a purely, I have some bullshit slides to investors, that she ever goes to jail? Yeah, such a great question. And I think in the, maybe in the court of public opinion, uh, the answer is that it would have been very different, right? The, the inventor would have been a much more, much less, you know, less powerful movie, maybe wouldn't even, even have been a film. Um, you know, John, John Carreyrou and his stories would have been much less interesting. But I think if you put that in front of a jury, you know, juries are, re- generally speaking, juries are really careful and just look at the facts and these are bad facts in just an investor case, you know, the, the, the lying is pretty easy to prove. And so, you know, I, I think there's a very high probability we would have gotten exactly the same result in that kind of a case. It wouldn't have involved as much stretching, but, you know, it might have been that that kind of case is just not as interesting to the prosecutors, right? So they might have ended up getting a plea for, you know, a relatively uh, low sentence, but no, I mean, I think once it comes down to actual facts and a jury, I mean, I've testified as an expert in a criminal case on behalf of the Department of Justice, and I, the jury was incredibly specific. And it wasn't a case that had human life at risk or you know, the kinds of uh, emotional issues, set of emotional issues that this case presented. But the jury, once they go back into the jury room, they tend to try to take the responsibility very seriously and look at, you know, this is their one shot. It's not like you're on a jury all the time, right? So, hey, I'm going to take this very seriously. There's a human being who's either going to go to jail or not. So I I think we might have gotten the same result. Yeah. And you're saying this is what happens in the jury room that sometimes there's just horse trading going on. That's, That's a bit of a surprise to kind of me, I guess. You've seen the film 12 Angry Men. That's often reality. I mean, we don't get to see inside a jury room very often. And I'm a law professor, so I always get excluded. You know, you, you probably both of you would be excluded from juries too. I don't know, especially in financial fraud. But my my, my experience, and and I think generally speaking, what people think of juries is that they they try to be very careful in, in getting the job done. On the other hand, there's a lot of evidence that they you know jury ver- verdicts happen more frequently right after lunch, and you know they get their parking Fridays. Fridays, <laughs> Fridays yeah. 
but but gen gen generally speaking, I think you know they take their position seriously, and that's the, why you'd likely get the same result if even if you didn't have all the colorful, you know, interesting, damaging facts with respect. There, to there were two questions I really had, kind of related to the jury. There were three that were excused during the during the trial. And I almost wonder if that, did, and I don't even know if that's normal or abnormal, but the other piece was there were quotes about things the jury had said where we found that she was really young to have committed a crime like that, or we found her to be a very likable person. And in my mind, it makes me think that she played the sort of victim, ultimate victim card as as a young woman. I was in this abusive relationship with a, with my boyfriend, you know, don't send me to jail forever. Is that a question or a statement? Well, well, the question is, is did she play that role perfectly? That's the, the one question. Okay. And then the second is, is the other question is, that, that jury churn, is that kind of normal? And uh, Yeah, I'll, t I'll, take, I'll, take, I'll take a first crack at it. So when I clerked, I clerked in the federal district court. A jury churn in a, in a case that long is not that unusual. Just because people, if it's nine to 12 weeks, stuff happens in people's lives. It's a huge commitment. Having three jurors turn and having alternates who sat and watched the entire trial, that's not that unusual. So the, the judge would have it in reserve. As opposed to your second question, which I think is also really interesting, is did the victim defense work? I would argue that it probably didn't. The notion that she... So, so I think what you're, what you're referring to was the defense tactic of she was in an abusive relationship with Sonny Balwani and that Sonny Balwani was primarily responsible for the fraud at Theranos and that she was essentially kind of a victim in a domestic relationship and that contributed largely to the fraud. I, I, I don't think that they buy, they, they bought that. I think that you would have seen a different outcome with respect to the way the charges kind of landed if they had done that. And, and I think understandably so. Like one of the first things that I did when this case, when the government filed their case was I downloaded all the text messages between them. And there's this great government file yeah. of all the texts between her and Sonny. And they, and it's really fascinating because like, I, mean, I hope my wife and I's texts never become <laughs> exhibit A, but like, they, they really start, they really go from like lovey dovey of like, you're my son and moon to like, let's fucking crush this person like, really yeah. quickly. And I think like, I, I'm pretty sure when those were introduced, like that, that, that it, that's tough for the narrative because she clearly is like the active participant in that relationship. And it doesn't seem as if she's the victim when, when you look at some of that evidence. That's my take. Yeah, I think Soren's 100% right about the churn, churn issue in a long case. This is very common, and I'm not sure it had much of an impact. But I think the second piece, one of the things that makes it so interesting is that you've got 12 human beings, right? This is part of the reason why we have 12 jurors, is that that defense, it sounds like, probably did work on a few people, oh, interesting. right? But it didn't work on all 12. So part of this, you know, part of the problem with that kind of strategy is that you really do have to run the table with with the jury to get everyone on board. And if someone says, you know what, I don't really care about sympathy or I don't care about these other issues, I'm looking at the facts, then then you've got a problem with respect to the jury. And so they were hung. Who knows exactly why they were hung on these other counts, but part of it might have related to the extent to which they accepted some of the strategy and defense. Or, or I mean, accepted, I, I think that's, that, that's really interesting. Accepted the strategy, but also how compelling she was likely on the stand. I think that worked. That was successful. By all accounts, she was compelling on the stand. 
it's an odd thing for me. I don't know about either of you. <laughs> I mean, I find her bizarre. Like uh, the personality, <laughs> I don't know what she was when she was in at trial, but with 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 the never blinking, the the Steve Jobs cult of personality, turtlenecks and the voice. I mean, did the voice change at all? Did she still have that same voice when she was at in a uh, trial? The voice changed. It did. Okay. Okay. Yeah, it wasn't like Buffalo Bill from Silence of the Lambs anymore. Uh, yeah, the voice. I mean, if you haven't gone back, I went back and watched The Inventor again just because Alex Gibney got all that video of her not blinking and staring into the camera. And wow, now is the time. If you haven't gone back and watched that, it is just eerie to try to figure out what's going on inside her right. brain. Especially at the time, right? Because this is before a lot of the some of the videos before a lot of the fraudulent acts that are alleged, right? And so, uh, yeah, who knows? Fascinating person. Maybe she'll talk. Maybe after this whole process is done and she's sentenced, maybe she will talk to someone and we'll hear. Uh, some I've, of I've heard that she's already got a ten-figure deal from Netflix. Wow. Figures is gonna, they're gonna, she's gonna have to deliver something for that kind of money. Uh, she's gonna, she's gonna have to go back and use the voice and say it puts the lotion in the basket. <laughs> the, the money here, like uh, on a whole bunch of different levels. Number one, she paid what five hundred thousand to the SEC. Is it, isn't that change she had in her couch? The fines, well, I mean, we don't know for sure what disgorgement will be, but the fines in some of these cases, the criminal cases, tend to be not all that large. Um, it depends on whether there's a fine or disgorgement. Her fine is $250,000 per conviction. Yeah. So that, that's not unusual for these kinds of cases where the bulk of the punishment that the government is seeking really is prison time. And that's the deterrence as opposed to the fine. But she had already settled with the SEC. And, you know, my, my question is like, how much money does she have left? I mean, did she walk away with hundreds of millions or was it gone? Yeah, she did not make money from Theranos. She didn't walk away with money uh -huh. from Theranos. I think that she took a little bit off the table. Look, I think that was also a point that they brought up, right? When she's taking a stand and she's trying to convince jurors that she had a good faith belief in that the technology would work, which I think was her tactic, right? Which was that like, it's not fine. You know, the, the, the documents, they didn't reflect what Johns Hopkins study had done, or like maybe it wasn't the truth in the moment, but she clearly has, you know, I think was able to communicate the good faith belief that she thought it would work. And that's what was important. And that's what was pretty typical for Silicon Valley. Well, I think this point, this point that you've, you've started talking about that it, it's not as large a fine and it's also not yeah. large fraud but she didn't actually raise that much money right and the charges in the indictment aren't that much money i mean they're they're nine figures barely right but in the scheme of things if we think about the largest financial frauds in history there are a lot plenty uh, that are significantly larger than that now in terms of how she got her money out so you know this is not a company that ever went public it's not clear how whether she was able to you know get additional financing somehow she has money in other places um, but we're not talking about a billionaire for for sure. So yeah, who, who, who knows? We'll, we may never. Yeah, I mean, at the at the top of the market, it was nine billion dollar valuation. She owned half of it, four and a half billion dollars. I'm just unsure, and I've not really found it readily available how much she took out. It wasn't nothing. Very very little. Very little. And who's paying for that defense? Is it what's left in Theranos paying for that defense? Was who's paying for the defense? Well. 
who do you think is pregnant? The the husband? What happened in her what happened in her life? I don't think that yeah. I think it's the I think it's the baby dad. Oh, oh the hotel heir. Yeah. They, yeah. they they have some money. Yeah. So they're paying for the defense. Nobody really knows. Is it that's not really out there or are you do you know that, Soren? Uh, no, I don't I don't know that. But that's my oh, okay. that's my educated given that it's Covington, I believe, is Williams Connolly's her defense counsel? Yeah. Given the number of uh, attorneys they had on there, I would estimate conservatively half a million dollars a week. Wow. <laughs> is, that, is, that, is, that, is that out of the realm of possibility, Frank? Uh, half a million dollars a week she was spending? No, that's not out of the realm of possibility. And she had very good lawyers. You know, very long time ago when I was in practice, I worked on a criminal case with co-counsel with Williams and Connolly. They're, they're really, really smart. And one thing you know is that someone is paying, <laughs> right? This is not a pro bono. Yeah. So someone is paying a fair amount of money uh, and has already paid a fair amount of money for the defense. The, the money was interesting. It was it came up in the pretrial where the defense was trying to push her lifestyle out of, uh, of the record. Like she was getting caviar flown up to her house every day by helicopter and some like really crazy ostentatious things it's not unlike the we work guy adam newman i, I was gonna say like if you look at we work it was so i the the fraud and folly class that that i that i teach at ut we all i always do elizabeth holmes and we work at the same time or followed by each other because her conduct is certainly more egregious but actually if you look at the harm to investors the capital raised, and also who was enriched the most like adam newman became a billionaire by immolating 47 billion of market cap. Yeah. As opposed to Elizabeth Holmes, where she basically doesn't get enriched at all. And that comparison, I mean, you could say, look, like, you know, he doesn't, I guess, the, 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 the egregiousness of the conduct, the intentionality of the lie. Does Adam Newman lie about anything? I, I don't think the evidence is there that he does. Well, Elon Musk does. I mean, and that, <laughs> that, that seems to be okay. And it's, this goes back to your, your, your points. I mean, uh, You've still got the Adam Newmans of the world not facing really anything. But but she, but she, but she should. But why should? Well, I mean, was he lying to investors? Because isn't that what Elizabeth? No, he wasn't. No. Oh, well, well, I, I'm struck by by you bringing up we as an example because we know because it's been well documented by a number of reporters that he was very effective at taking money out of the company. Yeah. And and it appears at least that that's something Elizabeth Holmes hasn't done. And it's, it'd be an interesting comparison to see just line by line how, how much she ended up with compared to what, what he ended up with. I mean, it does sort of, in her defense, right, suggest that she wasn't doing this entirely for the money. I mean, some, some people do believe that she was 100%. a believer in this. And that, you know what? If she had continued along these lines, if it had been like, you know, you, you know if she had had another couple of years... She had talented engineers working for the firm. Someone eventually is going to figure out this technology. I mean, if, if she buys enough time, three or four years, and doesn't make misrepresentations to investors, maybe we have a very different company now. Maybe Theranos has made some kind of a breakthrough. But, but you know, it's, it's a very different story compared to the, you know, some, some of the Silicon Valley people who are, who are pretty clearly orchestrating their finances in order to take money out of the company early and often. Yeah, I believe she believed in herself, in her product, and that she was right around the corner at any given day. I also believe she's got a touch of mental illness. I mean, <laughs> to walk around with that affect, there's just something not right there. And maybe that was part of her defense. I don't know. But 
that's yeah. I mean, one question: if you're if you're an investor in these kinds of companies, it's an interesting question. How how much on the dial do you want people to be lying, and how much on the dial do you want them to have mental illness? <laughs> so you know, is the answer that you really do want people who are totally sane and never going to lie to you? I'm not sure that that's right. Uh, in an ideal world. Yeah, but like, yeah, you you do get these real far out thinkers, these real creative people. I don't think Elon Musk thinks he's lying just because he said it. You know, it feels like if he said it, it's not a lie. That kind of cult of personality, and we, and I guess you guys are both right. I mean, I don't think, I don't think there's much of a deterrent set here so far. Does the government think they won? They were touting it. They're going to have to tout it in a press release. Yeah. Well, I know they said that, but if you're the government, do you think that you? win this case then you've won this case i would think frank's got some insight there don't you i mean like uh, you know all kinds of government g-men <laughs> it's a hundred percent a win okay i mean it's, 100%. Interesting. i think it's i think it's absolutely a win and people will talk now about counts and you know hung jury but in the long run these are the people who got the conviction these are the people who put elizabeth holmes in jail and i think memories as to the details will will fade is it something they thought from the beginning it's a stretch to go after the fraud counts related to the end consumer we put it in here for strategic purposes, or was it their goal? I mean, you know, maybe, Soren, you, you might be right that this was their goal, you know, was to get her on the customer-facing health-related counts, that that's the home run, and they didn't hit a home run. That might be true, right? But I think it's I think it's a win. Yeah, I, I think I'd view it. Certainly precedent has been set, and that's the thing the government always worries about most, right, is setting the wrong precedent and, and, and losing, and they didn't lose. They didn't get every charge they wanted. She's still facing 80 years, right? It'll be, it'll be really interesting to see what happens with Sonny, right? Because his trial's coming up. I think they're waiting, they're waiting to sentence her for Sonny's trial to be over. Is that true? She has a bunch of information and her sentence is not going to happen for quite a while. So, And her sentence, by the way, could range from a very short sentence to a very long sentence. So there's a big variable there. Well, that, that is interesting to me because uh, if, if you look at Insys Therapeutics, a great case study and something Roddy Boyd was dogmatic and, and staying after, God bless him for that. But people died. I mean, they killed people. And that's my opinion. John Kapoor and Berlikoff, the scumbag that he is, and even Babbage to a degree. And Kapoor got five and a half years. Nothing. I don't know that it's nothing, but he got, I mean, people died and- and he, he committed fraud, maybe not unlike here in some ways, and people died and he got five and a half years. Are we thinking she's going to get more than that just because she's looking at 80? I don't think so. I mean, looking at 80 just is because Congress uh, extended the five to make it 20 and it gives a little bit more flexibility in the sentencing. I mean, we could make a wager here if you want on the over under. I, I think many people would take the under on five and a half oh. right now, especially if Elizabeth cooperates. Well, okay. So there is that wild card in there that is if she cooperates with- But they're not going to give her credit for post-conviction cooperation, are they? Well, we don't know. And we also don't, yeah. I mean, these are, these are well, we're going to be speculating about all of this at this point, right? Because we don't know what what's happened uh, in the past. We don't know what happened immediately after the verdict. So- Tacos in Berkeley. Next time I'm there, I'll take you over. You got it. Tacos. <laughs> I don't know what else they make in Berkeley anymore. <laughs> I think everything in Berkeley. Name your kind of cuisine. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, uh, 
it is an international university. I thought everyone left to come to Texas. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure they did too, (laughs) actually. That's a shame. Well, I I feel like I'm going to take the over too, Frank. I feel like somehow this was a bigger case than Insys Therapeutics, even though people died in one and didn't necessarily in the other. And, you know, what does a win look like? I think a win looks more like a win when you get a hefty sentence. I'm going to go, I'm going to go with uh, seven plus. Wow. Seven, huh? These are all very well-informed views, right? So if you ask the average person, if you put out a bunch of sentences and asked people if they're commensurate with the crime, they're, they're often not, right? I mean, and, and, and that's true for, for murder convictions. It's true for financial fraud. Well, it's definitely true for drug convictions where people get 30 years for holding drugs. So here's an interesting question that sometimes I put to my students. I actually haven't done this at Berkeley yet, but is it rational? Let's assume that it's seven. Okay, so you're in the middle. Let's assume that it's seven. Yeah. Is, is it rational for you to engage in the conduct Elizabeth Holmes engaged in? If you think there's this probability of a seven-year conviction at some at some point, because the probability of that happening is not 100%, right? And so, what's the, how do people think that through if they're being economically rational? That there's that's the deterrence point that Soren brought up earlier, right? So let's say you think that there's a five percent chance that you end up getting caught and convicted like Elizabeth Holmes did. How many people in tech would say, okay, fine, I'll take that? Chance. But also, you have the yeah, you're completely right. So there's the expected value of of the conduct given the deterrent and 5% chance of a five-year conviction if we take what I think is going to happen. But I mean, the, the flip side of that is, you know, and especially in this last market, maybe there's a 35% chance that you become a billionaire like, or a 30, you know, like what is a 20% chance that the, it's, it, what does the, what does the rational actor emerge from the trial? What is the average Silicon Valley prospective entrepreneur come out of this? One? I mean, I don't know if I'm in all of this, I'm Chamath. I mean, you just don't care. Yeah. I just like, you know, whatever. Right. I mean, he stays far enough away to make the money where I think Elizabeth Holmes, you could say whatever you want, but she had skin in the game. She made an earnest effort. She was a horrible person at times, especially, you know, the text messages you're talking about. I mean, she really went after former employees in a very, very hard way to make their lives miserable. And that takes a lot of empathy away from me where she's concerned. But I don't know if that's all that unusual either. There's another interesting question about the distance that a CEO is away from a fraud, right? So some people think many organizations are basically set up to create the same kind of distance from the fraudulent conduct that Elizabeth Holmes had, for example, from the, from the customer. And so if you're within a large financial institution, for example, and you're the CEO, and you know, the, the entire structure can be set up in a way that anticipates that there might be some kind of a financial fraud within the organization that the person at the top just, yeah, I don't know. I don't know anything about that. Or I don't know enough about it. Yeah, I'm thinking Wells Fargo here. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, also the most famous, like a famous example is uh, Ken Lay, right? Yeah. That was essentially Ken Lay's defense at Enron was that the organization and the fraud was happening. The, the, the fraud was happening at a lower level in the organization. But for whatever reason, in that case, and maybe it's that era, that they were able to, the government and the prosecution was able to, to basically tie that nexus a lot closer. Whereas in the case of financial crisis in 2008, it was, you know, there's, there hasn't always been, that hasn't always been as easy. All right. So where do we go from here as far as predictions for what Silicon Valley looks like, if there's going to be any changes? 
I don't think that matters much. in terms of going forward. I don't think that ma- I don't think that matters much to people. I don't think there are very many people out there saying, "Oh, should I defraud this person? I'll only defraud them <laughs> if I know I'm going to get four years instead of eighteen years." I, I just don't think anybody's thinking well, that. Well, way. that leaves a big question: What's Sonny going to get? Sonny, Sonny's going to get roasted. That's what he's going to get. Sonny's Sonny's going to get. I bet Sonny gets more. Sonny is, should get if he hasn't gotten one already an ankle monitor. <laughs> Right now, <laughs> because Check the border. I, I think for all the reasons that she's a very compelling witness and defendant, I think he likely is going to struggle. Oh yeah, I mean, Sonny had to be seeing her testifying, going, um, "F me, man." <laughs> Really? Really? Now she turns up to be a normal person, right? <laughs> you know, you see these text messages. There were two of us, but I think he's in trouble. What do you think, Frank? Yeah, I think that's the consensus. I think, um, again, it's hard to speculate about how much time he'd end up getting and whether he'd just say, okay, I'm going to plead. Yeah, that might be his best path. Is he on a monitor, like passports taken, all that stuff? I mean, because this guy's got a lot of money. He had a lot of money before he met Elizabeth Holmes. And he could be, you know, not here. You don't get an ankle monitor pre-conviction. Huh. I mean, you're out of bail, so I'm pretty sure they confiscate passports out of bail. Okay. Well, fair enough. Look, my hat's off to Betsy DeVos, the Walton family, and Rupert Murdoch. I hope they're not in a breadline over this. (laughs) I feel absolutely terrible that our Secretary of Education got schooled by, uh, see what I did there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's very punny. And uh, lost a lot of money. You know, I appreciate you guys coming on here. Any last word on this trial, the next trial, or anything else coming up? I think it's easy to raise money in Silicon Valley right now, and I think people are moving on. You know, it's the kind of trial that everyone was fascinated by for a short period of time, and it's not going to make anyone any money, so let's focus on the future. Business as usual, you're saying, Frank? More more business, right? I mean, more money was allocated to venture in the last two years than was allocated in the previous 20 years combined. Wow. Okay. That's, it's all depressing. I mean, it's depressing for her. It's depressing for us. None of us won <laughs> if, if, if nothing changes. Well, it depends on who you are, whether it's depressing or not. If you're looking to raise money right now, then it's a thrilling, exciting time. Yeah. If you're looking to defraud uh, wealthy investors and venture capital, now is probably an exciting time as well. <laughs> you're on the board of Fraud Fest, right, Frank? I mean, so you, you have an annual summit discussing fraud in the corporate world. Any of this stuff coming up with SPACs? Oh, sure. Absolutely. No, I mean, we. one of the things we try to do is take these very controversial stories and cases and bring everyone to the table. So we bring prosecutors and defendants, we bring lawyers, we have we, we love short sellers. Short sellers are always yeah. welcome at our at our conferences to talk and to debate and have have uh, debate. I mean, that's one of the things you could say whatever you'd like about UC Berkeley, but UC Berkeley is a place where people like to debate. Yeah. And so, yeah, we'll 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 continue to talk about this, but we also want to talk about the next one, right? We want to talk about what you're uncovering that's going to going to hit in a year. Yeah. So we I did a one on one with John Kerry when we screened the Inventor when when it first came out. But that was a long time ago. That's kind of old news. We want we want to think about the next one. I think I think it revolves around three letters, E S G. <laughs> okay. Well, so tell me something specific, and we'd love to have you come in and talk about it, and have Soren and you point us in the direction of what the next big fraud is going to be. Well, I don't know about for me, but I mean, I, I will say I, I I tuned in to Fraud Fest last year and a couple of years before that. You guys do a great job. It's uh, very informative for. All of you paying attention, I think that's coming up in a few months. Usually it's, um, oh, no, it's like August or something like that, right? 
Well, it'll be, in, it'll be in the spring. We haven't set a date yet. We'd like to start doing these things in person. You know, it's a shame we can't be in person right now and slugging each other uh, physically, you know, in person as well as virtually now. But hopefully I'll be I'll be there for that one. Yeah, <laughs> we <laughs> bring it on and tell us who who, who you want to oppose and let's have a you know, oh oh oh, oh. I, definitely not Mark Cahotis. Oh definitely no that'd that be would be terrible tragic be like for a debate between him and I would just be something that I would I'd definitely be there yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and same for Soren, same for Soren you know whatever the cutting edge issues are. I mean you talk about them on your show and we talk about them and so you know there, this I'd, love, I'd love to i've never I, I actually hadn't heard of uh that much about broadcast i'd love to i mean whatever you want that, that sounds fantastic oh oh no you'd be great there i'm not i'm not a west coast guy we're we're like we're deep in the heart of texas here where, where are you right now you're in austin austin yeah, yeah maybe we'll do it in austin yeah someday. i remember you guys did in new york like 2018 it was it was a great event at Kirkland. <laughs> at, at Kirkland. The, the, the yeah. ironies. Was was Jeff Epstein there? <laughs> Kirkland has been a fantastic supporter of this. And we had, in fact, Andy Fastow, when he first, the first time he talked, and he held up in one hand his CFO of the Year Award, and in the other hand, his prison card, and said, I got both of these for doing exactly the same thing. And then he had a debate, he had a debate with Jim Chanos and, and Bethany McLean, and, and I moderated it, and I held his prison card while they were debating. <laughs> That's awesome. That's fantastic. At Brooklyn's office. That's amazing. I I don't want to be on the other side of a debate with Jim Chanos and Bethany McLean. That that I'm not showing up for. That's that's so cool. Those two are winners. They're both yeah, but they're both uh, brilliant and tough. And it was that was interesting to watch. But anyway, you're both welcome, and, and I appreciate you having well, me as a guest. It's been great. Absolutely, Frank. I love the Match King. I teach it as a module. I, I do this fraud and folly class at the business school at UT, and it's basically modeled after Jim Chanos's class. And we do a module on the match game and it's fucking perfect. Like, I love it. It just is, it's like one of my favorites. So, and there's actually like fantastic current day analogs with the CapEx fraud and it's, it's great. It's, it's, a it's, it's a, it's a great story. It's the gift that keeps on giving. It really does. I, I guess I've got to go get the book match King. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. I didn't realize I was on here to promote a book. Well, you're going to get at least one more sale out of it. So, uh, and you do a great class, Soren. So I hope, the t- I hope the two of you will do one together. I think your students would really love that. I really loved having you guys here. Um, I hope you guys can come back as returning champions the next time a white collar CEO is convicted. See you in about, you know. 10 years. My over-unders, five years. <laughs> Later, well, Sam Carl. Maybe we'll come back after the sentencing. And one yeah, of there you go. Up. Right yeah. after the sentencing and then Sonny. Well, folks, that's our show for today. I think we can all agree that Elizabeth Holmes is going to jail. We have anywhere from seven, five and a half and under. Thank you to my guests, Professor Frank Partnoy and Soren Andahl. If you enjoyed listening, give us a retweet, give us a like. If you didn't enjoy listening, go join Elizabeth in prison. (laughs) 